This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted today to be joined by Dr. Mort Friedman. Dr. Friedman is the past president of APAC and has been a doctor and a psychoanalyst for several decades. And I am so interested to get Dr. Friedman's take on his selected Torah verse or Tanakh verse, given his background as a mental health professional for so many years. So, uh, Mort, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Oh, it's just great to be here. Thanks so much. Tell us about your chosen verse, which is Micah 6, 8, what this is about and uh, why it's meaningful to you. Sure. Well, you know, I, I love this verse. My dad introduced it to me in my childhood. I've studied it over the years. And for me, I would say it's aspirational. I uh, can't say I live by it. I'd love to. I aspire to. It's just a very deeply meaningful passage. Why don't we just get right to it? I'll read it in Hebrew and then English because, you know, the Hebrew of this passage is so nuanced. As with so many biblical passages, each word just contains a whole world of psychological information. Huh. Micah 6 8, Higidlacha Adam, Mato, Umahashem Doreshmimcha. I've seen lots of translations, and I would just freestyle translate it as God has told man what is good and what God requires of us to act justly, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. It's uh, Really, I think uh, a lot of what uh, the Torah is about, that's the kind of life we're supposed to be living. And, and this comes right after Micah says he's, like a lot of the prophets, he's bringing the people to terms with what the Torah is in contrast to what their practice is. So he said, God does not want your 10,000 rivers of olive oil. He wants you to do only these three things. In other words, this is Micah's summary of what the Torah is, to act justly or to do justly, to love mercy, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So uh, it's an extraordinarily ambitious and even audacious task when someone, I guess that's why we have prophets, seeks to really encapsulate the Torah, which is the definition of infinitude, into uh, three different ideas. But that's what he did. That's what he does, to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So Mort, uh, what do you think the prophet Micah is telling the people of his time and telling us when he says, this is what the Torah is about. Good question, Mark. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, the Talmud, And whenever you study the Talmud, you got to have a sense of humor. The Talmud quotes Micah and actually quotes a number of other sources who uh, drill the Torah down. So they've got one source that drills it down into six maxims. They've got Micah who drills it down into three. They've got someone else who drills it down into two. And we're all famous with the Hillel quote, drilling it down into one. You know, to me, I think you have to take this into historical perspective. 
so Micah prophesied uh, around uh, 730, 720 before the Common Era. Uh, and just to review Jewish history in 30 seconds, so we all know that uh, the Jews left Egypt, returned to the land of Israel, conquered it. For hundreds of years, they were ruled by um, judges, by prophets. And then the monarchy was established, first with King Saul, then the Davidic monarchy. We believe the Messiah uh, comes from that Davidic monarchy. So David is the king, then Solomon is the king. After Solomon's rule, there's a rebellion, and the Jewish kingdom splits into two. The northern kingdom, which is referred to as Israel or Yisrael, which is uh, in the Shomron in Samaria of today, and uh, Yehudah, the Judean kingdom, which is referred to as the southern kingdom. That's around, uh, it, it's a capital is Jerusalem. Hebron's another big city. In the 700s, these two kingdoms are still existing. The empire that rules the Middle East is Assyria. And uh, both Israel and Judah, the two Jewish kingdoms, are vassal states in the Assyrian Empire. The emperor Tiglat-Pileser passes away, and the Jews take the occasion to revolt. The inevitable occurs. The next emperor, Sanherib, invades and decimates the northern kingdom. And there are a tremendous amount of refugees coming from the northern kingdom of Yisrael to the southern kingdom of Yehudah, centered in the capital, Jerusalem. So much like the Middle East of today, chaos, war, refugees. So you know this passage is going to speak to us. Micah, uh, his name means uh, who is like the Lord, and he's always exploring that concept. What is it like to be godly? So he lived um, a a town about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem in the Judean hills, overlooking the plains, overlooking what uh, today is the Gaza Strip. But that was actually the route that Sanhedrin took, even though he's coming from the north, he sweeps around and comes from the plains to attack the southern kingdom. So what's the role of a Jewish prophet? The role of the Jewish prophet is to speak truth to power. And Micah is a big part of that tradition. You know, it's interesting. Micah was one of the treostar, the 12, what we call minor prophets. Now, if I had a psychiatric career, like he had a prophetic career, I hope they wouldn't call me minor. So I don't think it's really minor. I think really what it refers to is those 12 prophets' works were very brief. So there are seven chapters of Micah in the Bible, as opposed to, let's say, Isaiah's got more than 50. Right. And and I I think your definition of prophet is very important because probably the worst definition of a word is the Oxford English Dictionary defining prophetic as someone who can know the future. The role of the prophet is not to know the future. The role of the prophet is to analyze the present and to warn about the future, and in so doing, to hope that his prediction doesn't come true. That's exactly right. To hope that the people will come to terms with themselves. So what Micah said was that Sanherib is going to destroy the Judean kingdom the same way he destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, and that the capital of Jerusalem will be sacked. Not a very popular message, but Micah went even further than that. 
He said that the reason that the kingdom would be destroyed was because the people, and particularly the leadership, and he's talking about both the secular leadership and the religious leadership, the prophets oppressed the poor, said they were dishonest, they were in it for the money, they were in it for the power, and that's not what Judaism is about. And that's the context in which we read this prophecy. He's saying, look, we're not supposed to be in this for the money. We're not supposed to be in this for the power. And there's this very mystical concept in Judaism that the land of Israel will not tolerate sinful behavior on the part of the Jews, that the Jews were given the land of Israel to be a light unto the nations, which means moral behavior, which means not oppressing the poor. Micah says, uh, what does the Lord want from us? He wants us to be good. And if you look back to Genesis, the creation of the world, God viewed that as good. He viewed the creation of man as good. Now, how do we define those terms? Micah spells it out. What does the Lord require of us? Now, we translate doresh to be require. The word doresh is super complex. It appears in a spiritual context, in a legal context, and in a psychological context in the Bible. So to be someone who is doresh is really somebody who seeks. So although we generally translate it in English as require, what we're really talking about is what does God seek from us? Ah, very interesting. Um, And our relationship to God in Judaism is very, very complicated, and it does involve seeking. It involves seeking God. And God seeking us, because in your translation, and what does the Lord seek of you? It's not only us seeking God, it's God seeking us. It's a, re- it's a relationship. Exactly. He's going to meet us halfway, and it is a relationship. He does seek us. And what he wants us to do is find ourselves. And we'll get to that towards the end of the passage. God wants us to be seekers. The first commandment on the Lord your God, what kind of a commandment is that? Sounds more like a statement. And Maimonides, the middle evil rabbi and philosopher, says, what does that mean? How is that a commandment? How can you be commanded to believe? And in fact, it doesn't even say that. It simply says, I'm the Lord your God. What Maimonides says is, you have to know God every way you are capable of knowing him. You have to be in touch with yourself. So what this passage says is, here's what it means to be a seeker. This is what the Lord wants you to see. Act justly. And again, this, the major message of the Bible is to act justly. That phrase repeats itself in the Torah, particularly in Genesis with our forefathers and foremothers. Act justly. And as you know, the word tzedakah doesn't mean what we think of as charity. We have no word for charity. Exactly. It means do the right thing. Oppressing the poor, Micah said, that's the wrong thing. Taking care of the poor, that's the right thing. And and I think it's very important that it says to act justly or to do justice, because it it doesn't matter when when one thinks about justice, what one thinks or feels. It's you have to act justly, you have to do justice. The commandment is to do justice. We'll get to the feeling in a moment, but the justice is a commandment to do justice. That's exactly right. You know, Judaism doesn't really score you on what your beliefs are, you're scoring what your actions are. So 
we're supposed to act justly. We're supposed to love kindness. And well, but I, I think it's interesting. It says, so we, we do justice and we love mercy. So here we're commanded to feel. It says you are commanded to love mercy. So one might say, well, how can I be commanded to love? And the answer to that is, if you're asking the question, you're probably defining love incorrectly. Love is not an overwhelming emotion like we think about it in the terms of a r- romantic movie. It's a deep commitment that one has to one's beloved. And that commitment can be garnered through action. So if we act a certain way over and over and over again, we'll become what that action represents. You're exactly right. And look, you know, I think that one of the most significant parts of this message of Micah's for us is we live in a highly narcissistic society. So, you know, generally people are thinking, what am I getting out of this? That's right. And if I'm going to be in a loving relationship, what is he or she going to do for me? Now, anybody who's got any experience knows that ain't going to work because a loving relationship has to do with what are you going to give? And this is the point that Mike is making. you got to love kindness. you really got to want to give to your fellow human. You can oppress the poor. That's really easy. But that ain't what this is about. And I think one of the beautiful things here is it's telling us that you can be instructed to love. And then by doing something, if you do justice over and over and over again, you will end up loving mercy. But no matter how much you love mercy, you still have to do justice. And that is one of the, the, the great tensions in ancient days and our, and, and our day about justice and mercy. And here, a resolution is developing. That's exactly right. And there is a certain back and forth. And I think that the third clause really says it well, because that talks about the relationship. It says, walk humbly with your God or, or with our God. And what is that all about? Why is it necessary to walk humbly with somebody else? And you know, I think it is sort of the essence of the psychoanalytic experience that you know we're asking uh, people to do self-reflection, but to start off doing it with somebody else in the room, or now during COVID, somebody else on the other end of Zoom. Um, but the end point of any good analysis is to give the person the ability to self-reflect. And I want to read a Rashi to you very briefly. Now I know. Um, you are the husband of a rabbi. Yes. And I bet your wife is pretty cool. Absolutely. But check out this life. So Rashi, Rabbi Solomon, the son of Isaac, is a French rabbi. That already sounds pretty cool. Now, what does he do for a living? He's a wine. He's a, was he in the wine business? He was in the wine business. Just doesn't get better than that. So here's this guy who's in the wine business. And in his free time, he writes a commentary on the entire Bible and the Talmud. Well, and, and, and it's interesting that our canonical biblical commentator was a businessman. The, the, the notion that being a rabbi or a scholar is separate from the world is not a Jewish notion. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, being a Jew means being involved with the world. So right. how much more so if you're going to be a rabbi? And, and Maimonides, of course, was a doctor, as was Nachmanides. Rashi was in the wine business. Every, everyone had a profession. Exactly right. So again, I'll, I'll very briefly read this in Hebrew because I, I think there is some nuance to it. So this is what Rashi says about walk humbly with our God. Rashi says, <laughs> Humans measure things very differently than God does. <laughs> if you embarrass your friend, and you come to apologize, 
איני מתרצה לך עד שיבוא פלונית שביזיתני לפניהם. Not accepting your apology until you bring in that third party that you embarrassed me in front of. You need to make it up to me in front of that third party. אבל הקדוש ברוך הוא אין חפץ אלא שישוב אליו בינו לבין עצמו. But God's ways are that you straighten it out, that you come back to yourself, within yourself. Now, I've seen this verse translated as between yourself and God. And there is an aspect of that where if you, quote unquote, slighted God, you have to make it up to him. But I think the most correct translation, or at least the one that's most psychologically meaningful to me, when you look at the phrase, they know the they not smoke, When you, when you say the, that about a person, it means get straight with yourself. Really do some self-reflection. So what Rashi is saying is if you want to walk with God, you got to be real with yourself. You have to go through a process of self-reflection and be honest with yourself. So put in very contemporary terms, you know, when, when Rashi talks about, you know, insulting. So if you're on a college campus today, and a microaggression is committed against you, you're going to bring the other student to some tribunal to make it all up in public. And what Rashi is saying is, look, if you've hurt somebody, you got to be real about it. Uh, but what's most important is don't press the poor. Do the right thing. If you step on somebody else's toes, you should be extremely sensitive to that. But maybe don't be so sensitive if somebody steps on your toes. So there's a process of you have to really come back to yourself and ask yourself, what are your values? You know, so look, I don't know what the header on uh, today's talk will be. It might be, you know, rabbi's husband talks to psychiatrist. Psychiatrist says, God wants you to be good. Okay. I, I think most people wouldn't need to listen to the talk to get there. But I think there's a much more nuanced message here about what does it really mean to be good. And again, in today's day, in our narcissistic era, to be able to realize that it's not all about you and it's not all about whatever microaggression might have been committed against you. It's about the relationship that you have to the rest of humanity. What are you doing? Are you acting justly? Are you doing it from a place of love? Are you doing it humbly? And, and I think an, an, another aspect of the, the third clause, to walk humbly with God, is that when you walk humbly with God, there are others walking with you, and you realize that others will have different approaches to God than you do, and that's okay because you're walking humbly. If you were walking arrogantly, you'd be thinking, this is the only way to do it. If you were walking, just walking, you might think that. But when we're instructed to walk humbly, we say, I'm, I'm walking, but I don't have all the answers. My path might not be the right path. It might not be the only path. Maybe I can learn from him or learn from her. And I think that's what it means to walk humbly with, with God. I agree with you totally. And I'll tell you an interesting thing about Micah. So I mentioned that Micah prophesied 730, 720 before the Common Era. There were actually four prophets in the Bible that prophesied at exactly the same time. And we know this because they list the names of the kings of Judah during whose reigns they prophesied. Yotam, Ahaz, and Chizkiyahu. 
were the the uh, the kings. And when you look at all ancient literature, they don't they don't give it the date. They give under whose reign they were. So so same for Jewish prophets, and, and same in in you know many other cultures as well. They'll say under you know whose reign they live. During the reign of those three kings, you had Isaiah prophesying, you had Amos, you had Hosea, and you had Micah. So three of those are from the Treasar, the 12 shorter works, and Isaiah, who was really one of the major prophets, at exactly the same time. And a number of their prophecies are quite similar. They use some of the same phrases. The messages are very nuanced. A lot of them are talking about destruction and what led to destruction. And there is a common theme of moral failure, but the route, the route to redemption is highly nuanced. So Isaiah doesn't see it exactly the same way Micah does. Micah doesn't see it exactly the same way Isaiah does. So part and parcel of Judaism is what we say, there are 70 faces, we call them, to the Torah. There's so many ways to be a good person. There's some ways to be godly. And in, in the Hebrew, you would know much better than me. There's not even a singular word for face. It's only faces. That's exactly right. Because nobody has one face. We all have faces. And I think the the walk, and, and again, you know the Hebrew so well here. The walk is interesting too. Now, halakha means walk or walking. Is that right? Yes. And so when it says walk humbly with your God, in halakha, Jewish law, it actually means walking. Because what happens when you walk? You might stumble. You might fall. You certainly will get lost. One would think that a pious tradition would say you stand before God, but no, no, no. We say you walk humbly with God. It's very different. Sure, because in contemporary terms, what would we say? It's all about the journey, you know. So often people think of Jewish law as you know so burdensome, but really, what it's about? It's kind of there's a ballet there, you know. If you learn the steps, there's a lot of beauty to it, but it, it's a path. It's a journey. And it's a walk. It's not standing still and, and obeying. We don't even have a word for obey, right? There's no Hebrew word for obey. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Because we're, we're all on a journey. We're all learning about ourselves. And hopefully we're all looking for opportunities to be good to others. Absolutely. So, uh, more. well, thank you for such a fascinating discussion of Micah 6, 8. Now, moving from this great text of the Tanakh to a, a very different text, and this is always the uh, concluding question, the second text is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says in the book, I just ran into somebody with whom I served in the war. And uh, this man had uh, saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to him, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are some things you've learned about mankind? And he said, I've learned two things. The priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So more, you've had a uh, broadly similar experience to being a priest and that you've heard people's confessions in your office as a, as a psychiatrist. Absolutely right. In all of your years of, of, of hearing people in their most intimate and their most vulnerable, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? That's a good question. You know, Micah got three, I'm getting two. Right. <laughs> okay. I'd say number one, it's all about relationships. We tend to get so distracted with other things. Micah mentioned money, mentioned power. Those are certainly true of us today, prestige. There's lots of things we run after. But in the end, you know, if you can wake up in the morning and see the face of somebody you love, how could it be better than that? You know, if you can 
raise children who teach you all about life? How could it get better than that? So, so, so when people come to you in your office with psychological or psychiatric problems, how do they boil down to relationships? Well, you know, I think that one of the problems that we see a lot of today is narcissism. You know, people are very, very much stuck on themselves. And that's a psychological problem? Absolutely. You know, it has to do with what we would call character and how your character develops depends a lot on early childhood experiences, but also depends a lot on how you take responsibility for yourself. And can you really come to terms with who you are, what you want, and how that fits in with what is really the right thing to do? So if you're going to be all about you, you're not going to have a very happy life. You know, in the short run, uh, maybe greed works, uh, but in the long run, it's not a route to happiness recognizing the importance of loving relationships, of true friendship, of giving to others, that's the root to happiness. Because I suppose if you're narcissistic, then what you want is people always to give to you and you will inevitably be disappointed because the world will never give you enough. Yeah, nobody's ever going to really bow down to you properly enough for you to feel good about yourself. You know, Narcissus, you know what that story was, the legend, this guy Narcissus uh, comes upon a lake And he looks down and he sees his own reflection in the lake. And he falls in love with his reflection to the point where he falls into the lake and he drowns. Because ultimately, that's what happens. If you're so in love with yourself, you can't really appreciate your surroundings and you can't appreciate those around you and the love that they have to give. Has the narcissism that you described been exacerbated in the last five or 10 years by social media or anything else, or has it been persistent throughout your career? Well, you know, I think, uh, Mark, I'm not sure how old you are. I hope you're a little young. 47. Okay. I think everybody our age probably thinks the last five or 10 years have been worse, right? But that probably went for our parents and our grandparents. People tend to be very nostalgic. Human nature has not changed very much, best I can tell. But I do think that social media is highly problematic. If you think Twitter is real life, it's not. Social media is pretty anonymous and people can get very hostile and uh, a lot of evil can come out. Now, it could be a tremendous force for good, you know, and I think we need to think about how social media can be used positively in society. But unfortunately, it can really distance people from each other. And one of the great teachings of Judaism is that very few things are good or evil. It's all about how we structure, how we channel, and what we do with them. So social media, like anything else, can be used for sacred purposes or for the opposite. You got it right. I think the other thing I've observed in my psychiatric and psychoanalytic practice is people tend to play it backwards. It's very common for people to come into the office and talk about, you know, all the things they did wrong and, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda. And we actually do have some wisdom within us. And if we were to just play it forward, you know, it's easier to look back at the end of the day and say, I wish I would have done this. Or frankly, at the end of life and say, you know, I wish I would have lived this way or that way. But the fact is that for those of us who are around, we get to play it forward. Um, And we get to say, you know, what do I really want? How do I really define good? How do I define a good life? Let me play it that way. And and that's what what the Torah means. Torah means teaching. And 
And I think when we think about the Torah or the Bible, the first question to ask is, what's the genre of the book? What kind of book is it? It's not a law book. It's not a cookbook. It's a guidebook. Yeah. And if one wants to play it forward, we've been given the ultimate gift of the Torah to, to guide us in that walking, in that endeavor of walking that we talked about before. We sure have. Well, more. thank you for such a fascinating conversation. It's really been a pleasure. You are the God of the